electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, can stocks continue this bear market bounce? All the major averages coming off their first positive week in the last four. We're going to talk about where to search for some opportunity in tech. Plus, as crypto firms search for bailouts, one company now doubling its valuation. Is this the time to get in at the bottom or just another example of froth in the market? And then Snowflake's Frank Slootman is with us. The company, a prime example of a growth stock that has come way off the highs. And Frank definitely, John, tells it like it is regarding the business and the outlook. He does tend to. And, you know, we're just a couple of days away from the end of the quarter, end of the half. And ah, I'm feeling a little queasy, right? Because we got our ankles broken. A lot of investors at the end of the first quarter, you might remember, you know, stocks were rallying into April and people like, oh, maybe this is over. And now, you know, the second quarter was absolute chaos and really rough for a lot of people in the morning. So I got a little rally at the end. You got people again saying, well, maybe this is over. Ugh. Well, maybe, maybe not, though, Dee. <laughs> well, definition of a bear market rally, right? If you listen to people who come on our air like Dan Niles, he has often warned of this. And this could be another one of those. I guess, Carl, as we head into the second half of the year, has anything fundamentally changed? I know that we've had weakness in commodity prices and some Wall Street analysts are arguing that maybe the stock market has done the job of the Fed, that this pessimism has now been baked in and spending has been pulled back, that a recession that we may get or are in, as some believe, will do the job of bringing down inflation. Yep. Uh, it's definitely more um, downgrades to global growth forecasts. IMF cuts their forecast to 2.9. S&P Global did the same this morning. So we'll talk more about uh, what the year ahead and especially what 2023 uh, may have in store for us. Let's stick with the market. A lot of focus on who will survive this moment. Here's famed investor John Doerr at Aspen Ideas today talking about uh, the market. We have too many unicorns. And so for the the some companies don't deserve and will not get more capital, but the excellent companies will be able to access the capital they need to grow. Uh, joining us this morning, CNBC contributor Delano Sapporo of New Street Advisors. Delano, great to have you, especially this week when we're going to wrap up the month and wrap up the quarter. And is this rebalancing sort of uh, uh, confusing the picture, leading us to think that there's more optimism than there really is? Yeah, Carl, thanks for having me. I think in, in some ways, yes. Um, you look at that, you just mentioned the downgrades that we're seeing all, all across you know, the globe. We're talking about GDPs, especially in the US as well. And I think so investors could be caught in that kind of that bull, that bear market rally that we are having. But I think longer term, if you look past 2023, there are opportunities for investors to get in. Now, picking those opportunities, that's obviously a thing that investors have to watch closely what metrics they're following to find those opportunities. But Carl, I, I definitely think there are still, there are some in, in this kind of bear market. All right. So be more specific. Which are they and why? So, you know, one of them, you know, we've been looking at is Meta. So you obviously look, looked at the pullback in growth. Pictures for growth has become less rosy um, over the past several, several months. But um, even with the guidance for, for revenue on, on Meta, that's obviously been lower. There's still some opportunities there. If you look at what they're doing with cash, as you mentioned, what John Doerr just mentioned, the companies that 
already have capital, they don't have to worry about accessing capital at higher rates, right? And Meta has a strong balance sheet. They're trading at 10 times cash flow. Um, obviously, you're looking at some of the things they're doing in their longer bets with Reality Labs. Uh, I think that's a longer shot for investors to look at and watch closely as they shift to the metaverse. Um, it's been severely downgraded. And I think, you know, there's opportunities for investors to look at Meta. Yeah, to that point, Delano, you hear a lot here in the Bay Area that uh, companies are looking for at least a two-year runway to get through this period. Whether or not that's the right time frame, we'll see. Um, I wonder, though, is there an opportunity, if you're an investor with a, a younger investor with a longer time horizon, yeah. in some of the newer exchanges like Coinbase or Robinhood, and we got to note that Goldman note, um, an upgrade of Hood, a downgrade of Coin, do you agree with that call? You know, both those companies, and I've held, I've held both of those companies, and and still hold a little bit in Coinbase and Robin. I think I, they're both going to struggle in this time. I think you know. Robinhood and Coinbase have something that volatility plays a part in both of their businesses that they have more trading, right? And obviously with Coinbase, you're seeing the price of cryptocurrency go down. I think you're seeing money, coins and tokens move from exchanges into their into individuals' own wallets. So, so that's an opportunity. That's not a good sign for, for Coinbase. Um, on the Robinhood side, you know, that company's also been in, in, in some trouble and struggling. There's less volatility in the market. I, I, I'd like it long term for investors. I think there's some opportunities there just because of the way they've been downgrading. You look at Robinhood down 53% year to date, um, but it's going to be very, very volatile in the near term. Don, I'm thinking back to what John Doerr just said about too many unicorns. And in one sense, how could that be? If you've got all these companies that are really worth a billion dollars or more, then that's great. But I think the implication is they're not really worth a billion dollars or more. And that's why they're not going to get more cash because their future is not as bright as the rosy yes. uh, you know, valuations would have suggested. But surely there must be a parallel in the public markets where there's some group of stocks that doesn't deserve uh, the valuation that they're getting. And all of that is going to play out probably in the public market as it does in private. So hear what you're saying about long term, some of those plays that are going to be worth something. But what is the segment of the public market that's going to get hit as those unicorns get their horns shaved. Yeah, they've been hit hard already. And you're seeing a lot of the, you guys are just looking at the, some of those, you know, high growth companies that have been, you know, shaved off considerably from their performance. And I think there's still more downside to go. Even in the private markets, as you mentioned, it's trickled down to the private market. You're seeing founders dilute themselves much, much more than they previously would. We're also investing in the private markets as well. So, those companies in those sectors that are high growth that aren't showing any signs of actually cash flow for investors um, are going to be continue to be hit. And that could extend all different sectors. Um, if you look at fintech, if you look at some of those high growth, you know, solar companies, those are still all being hit. Now, I think the ones that have strong balance sheets, the ones that are, you know, have ability to generate cash flow for investors, those are the ones that are going to you know, continue to perform and actually come out of this on the other side. And we're looking at those companies very, very hard and, and trying to find the ones that we think we should back, John. Delano, as you look at the S&P and the names that have come down this year the most, uh, there's no name that's down more than Netflix. And I know you think it's interesting, given the sub-guidance and the fact that Q2 historically is not their strong quarter. Yeah. Exactly, Carl. We've been invested in Netflix, and that's something that I'm still holding. And yeah, it, it's not had been a great picture. 200 subscribers lost in the first quarter. They're expecting another 2 million, obviously, in this quarter. Um, but I do believe in their calculation of total addressable, addressable market and obviously increasing. They're looking at uh, 800 million um, people. That, customers that they can penetrate. Um, and I think it's really interesting that they pulled forward the ad-supported tier that they're going to add to their platform, which I think will be obviously a benefit for the top line and hopefully a benefit for investors on the bottom lines. They look to allocate cash correctly. They spent $17 billion on content. And I think that's obviously 
in past times, it's been really good. It's brought a lot of people to the platform. Now they have to see if they can beat competition and continue to add people to their platform as they fight competition and get the best content possible. So it's, it's trading attractively, I think, right now. It's been incredibly downgraded, but there's still a lot of headwinds in this one, Carl. Delano, last time you were on, you pointed to consumer sentiment that at the time remained fairly strong. However, the latest read from the University of Michigan, it's the lowest on record going back to the late 70s. Where are we now? Sort of in a really broader picture, there was some optimism last week. We saw the Nasdaq up, what was it, seven and a half percent. What happens this week going forward? What's the next catalyst too? Is it earnings? Have those earnings revisions come down enough? Yeah, thank you, Dean. I want to rephrase myself. That was, what we really saw was prior to that Michigan sentiment, that consumer sentiment was strong. And now, obviously, you've seen it's degraded um, considerably. And I think a lot of that plays into inflation and the inflation numbers that came out were, were still were still hot in inflation. And consumers are thinking about everything they purchase now. Um, and I, so at this bounce that we're seeing over the last week, I it, it really is, you know, kind of just a bear, a bear market rally here that we're seeing. I think consumers are still worried about how they're spending, uh, where prices are going to go when it comes to renting, renting prices. Prices are going up considerably as we're seeing buyers from housing market pull back. So consumer sentiment is not in a great place um, in the near term. But I think, you know, investors have to look at how that can play in the long term. Delano, I appreciate it. Uh, very hard signals to read right now. Uh, that's why we love to have you on. Delano Sapporo. We'll talk Thank soon. Appreciate you. Now, City says one stock to target as a defensive play could be Microsoft. The IGV software sector ETF has fallen almost 30% year-to-date, but is up about 10% in just the past week. So evaluation multiples hovering near multi-year lows. City thinks the sector's derating could be coming to a close. Joining us now with his top picks in the space, City co-head of U.S. software equity research, Tyler Radke. Uh, Tyler, good morning. So um, we're, we're at the end, pretty much, of the first half, looking ahead to the second. And it seems like guidance and the overall economy are going to be an issue here, even for these defensive software names. So how stable, how confident does the guidance have to be um, that they can sort of weather whatever we got coming? Yeah, good morning. And thanks for having me. So I think as we look at the second half of the year, clearly the first half of the year for the software sector has been dominated by multiple derating. We've seen many of these high-growth stocks off 60 70% year-to-date, um, but you haven't really seen material weakness in, in fundamentals yet. Um, you know, quarters have generally been above guidance range, with a, with a few exceptions. Uh, we think, as we look at the, the second half of the year, uh, the, the market is likely to be volatile in the, in the software sector, but it's going to be more driven by estimate revisions rather than uh, the multiple corrections. And so, as we think about the sector, you know, companies that have exposure to large enterprise IT budgets that have weathered the storm through through previous downturns and have real platforms, you know, multi-products that they can sell, pricing power. We think those things are going to be very important as we think about the second half. So ServiceNow, Microsoft, those are at the top of our list in terms of our preferred names here in the near term. I hear you. I'm wondering, though, based on what we saw, at least the, the market reaction from Adobe just a few days ago. I mean, uh, it, it's off the very lows, even that it saw back in, uh, I guess it was May, but the stock took a tumble based on the overall picture that Adobe painted also in earnings. Why won't we see more of that? That's a pretty well, you know, they're, they're on a pretty tight ship over there. Yeah, Adobe's been around for a long time. I mean, I think if you look at the 
call it the last nine months for Adobe. They actually started having some issues uh, in their uh, uh, in September when they reported their their August quarter. They first kind of saw the the signs of consumer slowdown. Uh, they talked about elongated holiday seasonality, and then that's kind of persisted the last couple quarters. And so I think Adobe is quite different. I mean, if you if you look at their core franchise, it's Photoshop, it's their digital media business. That's a very heavy consumer. SMB-oriented uh, business. I think as we're talking about the large enterprise names, um, the, you know, they just have different demand characteristics. They have you know, much more mission-critical uh, software that's, that's allowing these, cust- uh, these companies to run. Um, so I think Adobe's a little bit of in, in a different camp just with that exposure to consumers, creative professionals that likely did benefit uh, during the pandemic. And th- there's also some concerns for Adobe specifically that uh, th- there's incremental competition from the likes of Canva and, and Figma. Yeah, right. A lot of these companies to run or drive, if you will. Uh, Tyler, you say that the sector derating is mostly done. Multiples have fallen below March 2020, that COVID trough. What makes you think that that is the right level? Yeah, so it's, so it's interesting. If, you know, we, we put out uh, some work last week where we kind of looked at uh, a, a measure of, you know, high growth multiples relative to the 10-year interest rate. And what we've seen thus far is, is a very strong correlation this year between rising rates and kind of falling uh, valuations. Now, as, as you look at the 10-year today, we're, we're hovering in, in the low threes. Um, Citi's in-house forecast is actually for the 10-year to, to finish uh, in the high twos. I think 2.75 is, is Citi's uh, year-end target. So, so clearly, um, if, if we do go to a, a rate much higher than three, I think there could be um, you know, more valuation downside. But I think so far the, the, the valuation correction, at least, has mostly been driven by kind of this macro rotation and 10-year and interest rate dynamic. You know, Tyler, one, one interesting dynamic of this rate cycle has been remembering that historically the market always overshoots what the Fed uh, inevitably does. I guess the question is whether or not that is truly different this time because of the way in which inflation has reared its head, something in ways that it hasn't done in a generation. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think, you know, as, as we think about the, the sector and, and the implications of, of various interest rates, I think, um, you know, what, what is tr- still true is that uh, software demand, even through this, you know, six to nine month period that we've seen, uh, recently of, of rising rates, it, it has remained relatively resilient. Uh, interest rates alone aren't enough to necessarily uh, disrupt software demand trends. And so I think the, the, the key thing to watch for, though, is, is how persistent, um, you know, are these demand trends going to be as, as, as companies deal with higher, you know, higher debt costs, higher energy costs, which, which ultimately impact uh, the, their purchasing uh, abilities. I think so far you've seen that more uh, on the consumer side uh, with some names like Shopify and, and Adobe, to, but, but the enterprise uh, segment has been a little bit less impacted. And Tyler, when you talk about software and the idea that multi-product platforms are going to hold up better, who among the pandemic darlings do you think have been able to keep their foot on the gas among the Zooms, the DocuSigns, et cetera, have done a good job expanding their businesses and who hasn't? Yeah, I, you know, of those two companies, I would say neither of them has really uh, demonstrated that they're more than kind of a, a 
certainly they have more than one product. Zoom has Zoom phone, they have Zoom rooms, uh, and, and they're starting to build out call center. But the vast majority of their revenue and also the vast majority of, of DocuSign revenue is that, is that single uh, product company. Uh, certainly, I think you could make the argument um, that some companies uh, outside of, of Zoom and, and DocuSign benefited uh, from, the, from the pandemic to a certain extent. Uh, if you look in, um, you know, the, the data management space, some of the, the cloud-based um, uh, vendors such as uh, Snowflake and uh, some of these usage-based usage, usage -based models saw really strong growth during the pandemic um, just because, you know, companies were pursuing uh, digitizations a lot, a lot faster. And so, um, you know, we think those companies have, have probably shown a little bit better um, kind of long-term durable growth trends by expanding into uh, new categories. We're going to get some color on that in just a couple minutes when we've got Snowflake CEO. Tyler, thank you. Thank you. We want it. We want to turn now to the story that is dominating and has been dominating the news cycle since Friday, and that's tech companies. They're among the most outspoken responding to the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Julia Borston has the latest. Julia, long list of statements. Bring it to us. That's right, Dean. Tech companies are condemning the ruling and speaking up about how they're protecting their employees' health care rights by paying to cover travel and medical expenses to obtain abortions. Tech giants, including Microsoft, Apple, Netflix, Meta, PayPal, and Yelp, reiterating their commitment to cover abortions through health care and to travel those travel expenses if necessary. Yelp's Jeremy Stoppelman saying the ruling threatens to dismantle progress made towards gender equity, saying, quote, business leaders must step up to support the health and safety of their employees by speaking out against the wave of abortion bans that will be triggered as a result of this decision and call on Congress to codify Roe into law. Meanwhile, Uber saying that it will reimburse expenses if any driver is sued for providing transportation on the platform to a clinic. And now all of the tech platforms are reckoning with this question of how they will protect user data if law enforcement or prosecutors demand that they turn over data that could indicate plans to end a pregnancy, such as search history and geolocation. Companies that access data that could potentially incriminate people looking for abortions include Alphabet's Google, Meta Platforms, Amazon, and Apple, along with the mobile providers Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile, and t data brokers such as Axiom. Now, many of these companies alert users when their data is being collected, and Apple recently made it the default to opt out of data tracking. Now, anticipating this ruling, four Democratic senators urged FTC Chair Lena Khan to investigate Apple and Google in particular for allegedly misleading users to collect and then sell their data. We haven't received any comments from these companies about how they plan to handle data requests, but many of them do have lengthy reviews to push back on requests. So, D, guys, this will certainly be a mm -hmm. key issue to watch about how they handle these issues and also potential legal challenges, not only for how they're managing data, but also if they're paying for people to travel out of state to get abortions. Absolutely, Julian. When it comes to data, this will certainly be discussed over the weeks and months to come, but it could have really important implications um, for the whole landscape and how that data is handled. Julia, when it comes to the statements from tech companies, there are really some key nuances here. You have some companies saying that they will pay for their employees to have treatment out of state, and then you have more sort of stronger statements. I'll give you an example. Uber and Lyft, right? Uber says that they're going to pay for employees to go out of state, but Lyft said the ruling will hurt millions of women. 
So that is key, right? Some are having a statement on abortion. Some don't even want to use that word. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also notable that a number of these companies are saying, look, we already pay for these services. Microsoft saying they already pay for any services around reproductive rights, including gender affirming care. And now they are going to make sure that everyone is covered if they need to receive these treatments out of state. But a number of these companies saying that they already help their employees get whatever care they need. But it was also been interesting, Deirdre, is a number of these companies have been throwing out dollar numbers, $4,000 to cover out of state travel, $7,000. Um, so some of them more willing than others to say the yeah. word abortion, but a lot of yeah. them really wanting to get out there and say we are already doing this for our employees. Um, and a lot of them increasingly remember a lot of these data companies are increasingly dispersed around the country. So their user bases may not be, I'm sorry, their employee bases may not mm -hmm. be as centralized uh, in states such as California as they once were. Especially post-pandemic, right? You saw large numbers of employees moving to other states, especially exactly. Texas. Julia, thanks so much. Still to come this hour, the CEO of Snowflake, as we said, plus an upgrade for Robinhood, a downgrade of coin. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at Chevron.com slash meeting demand. Time for a gut check. Two retail favorites in focus today. Goldman going opposite ways on Coinbase and Robinhood, downgrading the former to sell while upgrading Hood up from a sell to neutral. For Coinbase, they say, quote, further degradation in the stock's revenue base, while Robinhood has sold off enough to make today's level an attractive entry point. As you can see, Coinbase shares are down more than 7.5%. Both these stocks, though, they're down 80% since their listings last year. John? Yeah, well, after the break, Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman is with us. Tech Check is back in a moment. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Boza. In just a few moments, we'll be joined by the CEO of Snowflake, Frank Slootman, on a day where the stock relatively steady along with the broader market. But first, a news update with our Leslie Picker. Hey, LP. Hey, Carl. Good morning. Ukrainian President Zelensky is accusing Russia of hitting a crowded shopping mall in the center of the country with a missile starting a massive fire. Right now, officials are saying at least two people are dead and 20 are injured. As President Biden and his fellow G7 leaders consider a new attempt to limit Russian oil revenue, the Associated Press is reporting Biden will announce the U.S. will also be providing an advanced surface-to-air missile system in Ukraine. It's the same Norwegian-developed anti-aircraft system used to protect the White House and the Capitol building. 
And shares of digital world acquisition are down almost 10%. That's the SPAC that plans to merge with former President Trump's social media company. It says in a filing today that each member of its board of directors has been subpoenaed by a federal grand jury in New York. There is already an SEC investigation uh, underway into the deal. And pending home sales increased slightly in May of 0.7% from April, but analysts are saying the surprise move may be just a blip due to a small pullback in mortgage rates during the month. I'll send it back over to you, John. All right, Leslie, thank you. Uh, And now turning to enterprise software, the sector getting hit hard by the broader sell-off, but our next guest says the opportunity is big, uh, unveiling a range of New products at Snowflake Summit, uh, the company's global user conference held annually, spanning uh, cybersecurity, app development, and more. What's next for the space? For the space, well, joining us now to discuss Snowflake's CEO Frank Slootman. Frank, good to see you. Uh, Want to talk a lot about Summit, but first, uh, first time really talking to you and ma- major CEO in tech since uh, the Supreme Court struck down Roe last week. So, you know, in your book, which you talked about uh, earlier this year, you talk about aligning people and culture. You talk about building culture. What does that mean for leadership at this kind of a time of upheaval right now? Well, we, we may have a little bit of a different view. I mean, culture is, uh, is not sort of a universal good, like there's only one good way, uh, you know, to do it. I mean, culture needs to support and enable and align with the mission of the company. And, you know, if you work in a government institution or a nonprofit or you work in a, in a large, slow growth company versus, you know, high growth uh, tech Silicon Valley, I mean, the culture is going to be very different because the culture needs to help the company, uh, you know, in, in achieving its mission. Uh, I, I will tell you that in companies like ours, you know, you have super high growth, it's high pressure, it's very competitive. So, you know, the, the, the cultural values, the dynamic, you know, will be different than other companies, but it, it suits what we needed to do, uh, you know, for us. And of course, you know, our people need to feel good about that. And, you know, we take great pains during interview processes to make sure that people understand, you know, what culture they're, they're getting into and that they can, you know, reconcile themselves fully with that. Actually, we want them to thrive with it because it's not for everybody. And that's, we understand that as well. So we don't want to make mistakes either on their part or our own. Okay, uh, I'm not sure what that means in the context of what I was asking, but it sounds like you're focused on uh, aligning with the mission and not what's happening in broader politics. That's 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 correct. I mean, the broader politics, it, it is what it is. Uh, you know, we try not to weigh in on that because it's a sort of a no win conversation. There will always be people that will be unhappy with that situation. And, you know, we're we're in the business of running snowflakes or so we're doing that to the best of our abilities. No matter what's going on in the world, there's always something. You know. All right. Now, let's talk about Summit. Uh, you talked about moving into a more application development space with Data Cloud. Uh, you announced specifically a native applications framework. How does this really affect your uh, addressable market going forward, especially because you know there's this report about C- CIOs and you've got a lot of loyalty and intent to spend with uh, forward-thinking CIOs out there? Yeah, this is, a, this is a huge conference for us. I mean, we had 10,000 people in attendance, you know, uh, never mind, you know, pandemic, et cetera. And then the international was not really well represented because they're not traveling yet. 
But we were making announcements and showing things that have literally been years and years, uh, you know, in, in in the making. So it was very significant. Now, just just for this audience, I mean, we're really signaling an evolution, if you will, from doing strict what we call workload modernization, basically taking stuff from you know on-premise data centers, you know, to the cloud and for people to enable, uh, you know, all those benefits that that you get from that. Not that we're going to stop doing that. That's certainly, you know, part of our bread and butter. But it's evolving, and and what it's evolving to is an industry focus on on very specific industry, you know, challenges, things that are very what we call mission aligned. And in other words, things that are important for those industries and those institutions. Uh, healthcare, it's it's huge, for example because they're aiming for predictive insights. In other words, they don't want to necessarily treat people for symptoms. They want to be able to predict, you know, when people are going to get ill with what disease, at what time, with what reliability, and then not just become predictive, but also become prescriptive, meaning what are we going to do about them? What is the what is the reliability of the therapies and protocols that are being advised? So that has, a, that has the opportunity to completely change, not just the economics of the industry, but also quality of life, longevity of life, so that's what we mean. Uh, you know, data is, is becoming so incredibly uh, critical to right. the mission of institutions out there. Yeah. Doesn't this put you in uh, tighter competition with the hyperscalers, the cloud platforms themselves, right? Because this is a platform move for you. You've got the reputation. You've got the loyalty, perhaps, to pull it off. But uh, it, it's a new stage in the game, right? Well, I mean, we're, we're we're fully partnered with our public cloud partners. I mean, we execute our mission, you know, through the public cloud uh, platform. So I, I would say we're joint at the hip. These are these are uh, problems at a scale. It, it is hard to put brackets around and even predict, you know, because this 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 is the the essence of what what business is is trying to do for for their constituencies. So I think everybody needs to invest in figure out how to solve these uh, these challenges because they're enormous. And I think it's going to play out over a very long period of time. It's not easy. It was easy. It would have already happened. Hey, Frank, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about some of these memos that were coming out of VC firms to their founders, uh, urging extreme caution. At the time, you said that it was a classic overreaction when the business cycle pivots. I wonder, since then, has the picture darkened to the point where that kind of caution makes more sense? Yeah, actually not. I, I was at an uh, event, uh, you know, last week where they polled online uh, a lot of early stage entrepreneurs and uh, they asked them, are you going to, you know, cut back on hiring, reduce workforce, or are you going to double down? And, and two thirds of that audience said, we're going to double down. So in other words, the mood is very much, we're going to compete. We're going to play the game as opposed to we're going to cower in, in, in the corner and wait for it to be over, you know. Frank, it's Deirdre. When it comes to startups, um, if they are looking at cutting costs, how are they thinking of sweets versus best of breed? Microsoft's chief commercial officer was with us a few weeks ago, and he said that best of breed was a luxury that some customers can no longer afford. So first, I guess, do you consider yourself more specialized, a best of breed company, or do you consider yourself with the announcements that you made this week as well, more of a platform? And do you agree with that sentiment? Well, we're, we're the epitome of, of best of breed and we compete on a best of breed uh, basis. You know, just have a long uh, list of boxes checked. That's not the way we do business. I understand why, you know, other people engage in that. It's been true, by the way, you know, since the beginning of computing. Um, so that, that standoff has always been there. When you solve really hard problems, you know, you need to go for, for best of breed. Um, you know, in other words, people want to settle, you know, for, for a Sweden sort of surrender themselves. 
you know, to a, to a big relationship with a very large company. Yeah, there's people that do that. They solve for low risk relationship costs and so on. But there's other people who are solving for business impact. That's what we're focused on. You know. Frank, uh, when it comes to the consumption model and some of these new products, new services that you're announcing, how should investors think about that, particularly heading into the back half of a year where the economy is pretty uncertain and maybe just overall, um, you know, people aren't going to be consuming as much as expected. Are you making a share of consumption play that even starts to play out uh, in the next couple of quarters? No, we, we are really, and I, I said this last last time uh, as well, John, we're not really picking up signals of distress and duress, uh, you know, in our constituency. It doesn't mean that other people are not seeing it, but I can only, you know, react to our experience. And, you know, the, the type of things that what we do are still highly prioritized in large enterprises. And by the way, you're seeing that in CIO surveys that were just conducted by JP Morgan and other people, um, that their the, the spending intentions are still incredibly high. So, um, you know, we're not backing off of, off of anything uh, at this point in time. We just see no reason to. Okay. Um, so talk to me about the partner approach that you're taking right now, particularly in this economy, when others are potentially cutting back, perhaps invent, investing less in marketing, less in Salesforce, as you're seeing strength leaning in, what sort of possibilities does that open up for you in markets that you can enter and companies that you can partner with? Yeah, you know, it's actually a really important question um, because we, from the beginning, you know, we we have said, you know, our ecosystem of partners and all the, all the companies uh, from a technology or services uh, standpoint that can really build out the richness of the platform, meaning that customers have choice, they have innovation, there's new things coming to them. And this is in contrast to some of the companies that you talked about earlier, they basically have every, you buy everything from them, right? It's, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's one flavor, one brand. And uh, that's another strategy. That's another point of view. We don't take that point of view. That's one of the reasons why, why we've been very careful, you know, not making acquisitions in categories where we start crowding out our partners. Uh, because we have a consumption model, it really doesn't matter to us, you know, whether we drive the consumption or a partner does it, uh, because economically it adds up to the same thing. Okay. Now, finally, on cybersecurity, uh, you're, you're making a bigger push into that. There's a lot of conversation about the need for coordination for more effective cybersecurity heading into the future. So how does that approach, not bringing everything internal, perhaps not acquiring your way into the space, affect your pitch on why technologies, you know, software built on top of Snowflake is going to be more secure? Well, this is what's interesting, and there's, there's so many uh, examples like this, uh, but in the case of cybersecurity, it's really being defined or redefined, whatever you, you, how you, or you want to look at it, as a data problem, right? Because what have people done historically in cybersecurity? I mean, they're, they're paying, I don't know how many data sources and analysts have to sort of figure out how to reconcile that within their own heads. Now, you know, through, through data collaboration and through the data cloud, you have the ability to, to query across data sources and develop insights and, and train ML models that become much more accurate, much quicker, much more predictive than they've ever been. So there's actually a real opportunity to take steps up in cybersecurity, you know, because of the data orientation, you know, of the of the challenge that it has. So we actually saw our customers take off with this. I, I wish I had had the bright idea, but it was really our customers that saw it and, and went for it. And we were just fast followers here, you know. All right. Well, we look forward to continuing to see 
how your results pan out with all that. Frank Slootman, CEO of Snowflake, thank you. You bet. And exclusive results from our Tech Executive Council survey. That's just 30 seconds away. Do stay with us. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. With all the economic cross-currents that businesses are facing right now, we at CNBC reached out to the members of our Technology Executive Council earlier this month to gather some intelligence on how they're navigating. Uh, TEC members are C-level executives running tech functions at companies of all sizes across a variety of industries. Three areas to highlight here, hiring, security, and spending. On the hiring front, finding tech talent is not getting easier, though many told us they hope to opportunistically hire workers who are displaced by the layoffs that we're seeing at companies like Netflix and Coinbase. In cybersecurity, as we were just discussing with Frank Slootman, a number of members told us they're concerned about sophisticated attacks funded by nation states. And when it comes to spending on technology, no surprise in this inflationary environment, they plan to be spending more on technology in the year ahead, Carl. Um, you know, it, it's important to get this sort of color, this sort of flavor from tech executives on what they're seeing and feeling? Because sometimes it's different from what the overall market might be implying. And Slootman was saying, hey, no slowdown ahead for him, uh, which is interesting to hear at the end of the first half. There's also a narrative, though, running through the market that unless there are high-profile cyber events, right, breaches of security, that that Mm -hmm. sort of leaves investors thinking, well, where's where's the urgency in owning these names? So it's strange that the absence of at least major hacks, for example, uh, leads to a lessening of interest over time. That's something we wonder all the time, guys, is in the absence of one in recent months, I suppose, but there's still enough big ones to keep that threat uh, present. As part of the Tech Council Executive Council, did have a conversation with Reid Hoffman last week, you know, legendary VC investor, about playing offense during this time. And that's sort of what the results highlighted as well. When you think about these companies that aren't implementing hiring freezes, but they're looking for opportunity to do more. So that was a really interesting um, discussion that members were able to tune into. After the break, guys, Goldman going opposite directions on a few tech names. Those calls are next. Do stay with us. Get a gut check on a couple of software names. Goldman rebalancing their ratings across its universe, upgrading GitLab and Atlassian to buy despite what it calls a weaker macro backdrop. Uh, Goldman says DevOps show elements of counter cyclicality, providing a high value proposition and some low market penetration. Atlassian's down about 20% this year and GitLab's down about 45%. Some of these calls, John, are driven by really weird cross currents has really nothing to do with the fundamentals at each company. It is going to be a wild second half of the year <laughs> as some of these calls 
you know, Slootman saying that, that you know, full steam ahead. Uh, we're going to see how that pans out for sure. After the break, while Bitcoin has been cut in half this year, our next guest crypto firm is looking at a double valuation. So is that a sign of more froth in the market or a chance to buy the dip? Huh, we'll discuss next. Don't go away. Just this morning, a major crypto-focused hedge fund, Three Arrows, officially defaulting on a loan. Meanwhile, FTX is reportedly in talks to acquire a stake in BlockFi after giving that company a $250 million loan. Many crypto-focused companies are facing significant liquidity issues. But despite those financial troubles, our next guest is the CEO of a crypto trading platform that announced last week it doubled its valuation in its last funding round. FalconX CEO Raghu Yarlagata joins us now. Raghu, it's great to see you again. Um, to clarify, when did the deal close and how much runway did it give you guys? Good to be back, Deirdre. Um, the wires at the bank as recently as about three weeks. So this is a very, very recent round. And uh, speaking about the runway, we've been profitable, including despite the recent market conditions, Q1 has been profitable. So from a runway standpoint, we're very, very strong. The money was wired. But when did that close, Raghu? Sorry, just to clarify. Yeah, the, the closing process was about uh, a month back. Okay. Um, so things have changed, certainly, over the last month. Do you think that you would have raised at the same valuation, given everything that's happened over the last month? Do you think that that has been material for the crypto markets? Yeah, I think this round is definitely bigger than FalconX itself, right? I mean, given that the funds uh, came as recently as about two weeks, some of the biggest names and the most reputed names in growth investing um, closed a very high quality round. And the reason why that happened is twofold, Deirdre. The first thing is from a vision perspective, uh, the data on this is very clear. Crypto for the very first time objectively proved that you can run full stack financial services, whether it's trading, credit, banking, clearing, 24-7, truly globally and truly elastically. And no country, no company, no protocol has done this before. As a result, what we believe is a lot of world's value is going to be tokenized, including the traditional equities. And we are seeing signs of that already. So despite the market conditions, right. our Q1 has been the highest in terms of uh, the number of customers onboarded, highest active engagement. And for those reasons, I think the round came about. Right. And you guys also focus on institutional investors. Raghu, FalconX generates revenue via trading spread. So you guys are essentially a market maker in crypto. Can you explain how that works and how your institutional customers can be confident that they are getting the best price when you guys are doing that? Absolutely. So FalconX more broadly is a digital asset brokerage. And you're absolutely right, Deirdre. We focus completely on institutions. Trading is one of our product lines. We also offer credit and clearing. So on the trading side, uh, the, the spread is effectively our, our revenue. And the way we aggregate pricing is we sit on top of a, a variety of liquidity pools, yeah, retail exchanges, market makers, OTC desks, and in some cases, miners. So we aggregate pricing from all these different venues, clean up with a layer of machine learning and give a, a very strong reliable price on top. As a result, reliability and the depth of liquidity is much, much greater uh, than other places. And that's how we aggregate pricing on top. Your, your point about uh, financial clearing uh, is a good one, and I've always wondered why the industry doesn't use that more as the tip of the spear, at least for the underlying technology. And I wonder if, if you think little bits of information we've gotten lately, reports of, say, Goldman, for example, wanting to require some Celsius assets is a sign that, that fintech and, and legacy financials are, are trying to brace themselves or prepare for that moment when it does become closer to reality. 
I definitely think so, right? I mean, if you look at some of the recent stress tests in the market, over the last two months, uh, there have been some systematic failures in crypto. And what we learned through the process is aspects of crypto are coming very strong. For example, when entire Celsius is panning out, uh, this is a systemic event in crypto. And what we learned from it through on-chain analytics is incredible. For example, if you were sitting in 2008 recession, and to understand truly what happened during that recession, it took three to five years to piece all of those flows and piece all of that information uh, together. But using a combination of on-chain analytics and also like in a crowdsourcing on Twitter, the world actually learned much faster about how some of these cascades are happening. Now, this is what the traditional finance is also interested to your point. I think some of the innovation that's coming in crypto is not just going to be limited to crypto. It's going to transcend beyond crypto all the way to tokenized uh, equities in the future. And that is why a lot of legacy players are very interested. Right. And Raghu, how are you looking at the space at large? You guys do your own clearing in-house. How much cash do you need on hand for that? How much are you investing in crypto yourselves? Um, We had Gary Gensler on earlier this morning saying that there were so many tokens out there saying sort of come hither, but many of them are going to fail. How are you looking at the space and how are you running your balance sheet? Yeah. So one of the most important principles for Falcon X is we are market risk neutral. What that means is our ethos is not to trade against the customer. Our ethos is not to take directional risk. Deirdre, to your point, that is extremely important in these market conditions. Over the last one and a half, two months, market players, market infrastructure providers that took directional risk Mm. got hit very, very badly. So it is very important for a counterparty, I mean, especially if you're a customer looking at a counterparty that's not taking market risk neutral, that is taking market risk neutral approach is very important. And as a result, we uh, are in a very strong place. In fact, our balance sheet has been the largest it has ever been. Mm. Now, with regards to the tokens, we are very careful in terms of like which tokens we touch. The natural protection, because we, we yeah. serve only institutions, we have we only serve it, uh, tokens that are very interesting to the institution. That footprint right. is much smaller than the retail footprint. Raghu, we're, we're running out of time, but that is such an important distinction, so I'm glad you made it before we went. We'll talk to you again soon, Raghu. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Tech Check's got a podcast. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to it. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. We'll be back in a moment. One more thing before we go, Amazon shopping holiday may be past its prime. The Wall Street Journal today takes a look at Prime Day, which takes place on July 11 and 12, finding that the event's growth is well off historic highs, according to Insider Intelligence. Insider's numbers show shrinking benefits for competitors like Walmart and Target, which have been holding bandwagon events for the past several years. Plus, Prime Day might not even be your best shot at a deal these days, with some of the biggest promotions being twice as large as Prime Day's, according to Adobe Analytics D. That's one reason and people think there might be more Prime Days in our future than just once a year. We already have a lot of these Amazon Days, John. I mean, there was one for makeup, one for clothing. I wonder if they're diluting that Prime sort of day benefit for customers. Well, I wonder, with supply chains tight and inflation high, do you even want to try for a big Prime Day? might be expensive for you. Yeah. Or clear inventory. <laughs> we'll see. Still a couple of weeks away. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.